Hello, my name is Nicholas Ward and this is Historical Hysteria, the greatest show on the internet, according to my mother. Today's episode is brought to you by your public library. Use them or lose them. Today we are travelling back to 1920s Chicago to explore Prohibition and its most famous son. So don your fedoras, get on your flats, and remember the password is Felicity. Between 1920 and 1933, Prohibition was the law of the land in the United States, outlawing the production, importation, sale, or transport of liquor through the country. The ban helped give rise to massive organized crime groups smuggling and producing alcohol across the nation. Border cities like Chicago convulsed into all-out gang warfare as the criminal syndicates fought to dominate the lucrative trade. The 1920s gave rise to some of the most infamous and glamorous criminals in history, from Charles Lucky Luciano to George Bugs Malone, and as far up as possibly Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family. But by far the most famous of these outlaws was Al Scarface Capone, who rose from a minor thug to be the kingpin of Chicago and one of the richest gangsters in the nation. Capone began his career as a minor thug in New York before moving to Chicago in 1919 as an enforcer, where he quickly rose to become the right-hand man of Johnny Torrio, the head of the city's Italian crime syndicate. Torrio retired in 1925 after being shot several times, and between 1925 and 1931, Capone became the American gangster. Capone quickly bought off police and politicians while murdering or destroying those who stood in his way. However, among the public, he won a reputation as a Robin Hood-esque figure, and the press of the day reported on his lavish lifestyle like he was a Kardashian. At the height of his fame, Capone organised the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre, gunning down seven members of the North Side Gang. The massacre solidified Capone's position as kingpin, however turned the public's sympathies against Capone and brought down the wrath of the US government. Now the police and state courts in Chicago, Illinois, were worse than useless, having long been infiltrated and compromised by the gangs. So the federal government sent in their closers, the men you called when you were all out of options. That's right, they sent in the Internal Revenue Service. And it is here that Al Capone met his nemesis, the most famous cop of the early 20s, Treasury Agent Elliot Ness, the man who took down Capone with his team of untouchables. Ness was born in Chicago in 1903. After graduating university, he joined the US Treasury Department in 1928 at the age of just 25, just as Capone was beginning his tenure as kingpin of Chicago. Ness worked in the Chicago Bureau of Prohibition, tasked with taking down the illicit alcohol business in the city. And between 1928 and 1931, Ness would work his way up in the Bureau till in 1930, at the age of just 27, he was appointed as the head of a special task force who would go down in history as the Untouchables. A nickname earned from their incorruptibility when several members turned down large bribes from the Capone organization. Over the next year, they would engage in a series of high-stakes busts of the Capone organization, going head-to-head -head with the most dangerous man in America. Leading a small team of ten, Ness took down stills and smuggling operations, costing Capone millions. Ness and his team faced threats from corrupt police 
and gangsters, but in the end, Ness stared the devil in the eyes. And the devil blinked. Thanks to Ness's tireless work, Capone was sent down for tax evasion. That is how the story goes. Because it's how the press, the government, and Ness said it went. Following the fall of Capone, Ness was thrown in front of the cameras, promoted as the man who took down Capone. Ness would co-write a book to cash in on the fame of the fall, though it wasn't published till 1957 after his death. It detailed how he had personally taken down Capone, and it became one of the most famous true crime books of all time. It told of the incredible true exploits of the daring untouchables and their war against Capone, with a tommy gun in one hand and a badge in the other. The book was a smash hit and revitalised Ness's national fame, which had waned following the end of Prohibition. It was turned into a popular TV series in 1959, a movie in 1987, and another TV series in 1993. Ness even had a beer named after him, and as of 2018, the town of Cloudersport, Pennsylvania, holds an Elliot Ness Festival every year. Which is a bit strange, because the only thing Ness did in Cloudersport was die. In 2014, the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Agency, even proposed naming a building after him, eventually settling on renaming their main atrium after him. It was a story too perfect not to tell. Almost like it was crafted for the time. Almost like it was a story. Almost like it was entirely made up. Because it was. Almost entirely made up. Unfortunately, the story of Elliot Ness and the Untouchables is just that. A story. When in 2014 a proposal was put before the Senate to name the ATF building after him, Prohibition author and historian Daniel Orkrent said, quote, you may as well name it after Batman. End quote. Ness is incredibly famous in American history as the nemesis of Capone, the incorruptible officer of justice. But in real life, Ness only ever met Capone once. And while he was a successful cop, he was much more a successful self-promoter. In fact, pretty much everything about Elliot Ness was a lie. For starters, let's jump back to the beginning of his career. Ness graduated with firsts from the University of Chicago and did join the Treasury at 25 and was appointed the head of the Capone Task Force at 27, which is very impressive. Except the man who gave him those jobs was his brother-in-law, chief investigator of the Bureau. Nepotism is slightly less impressive than prodigy. Ness went on to lead a hand-picked task force in taking down Capone's distilleries. However, this wasn't as unusual as it is generally represented. Organised crime task forces are quite common in law enforcement, precisely because of corruption. The 1920s saw criminal gangs become wealthier and more powerful, and the need for specialised task forces was clear. What initially set Ness apart from the rest was he was made a media darling. See, the real work to take down Capone was being done elsewhere. The Untouchables were a PR campaign. Press were brought in and lurid stories made up so that people would see something was being done. Except like in modern organised crime, the big flashy busts don't stop the criminals, because they were more PR 
than anything else. And Capone just kept going about business. In fact, literally not a single thing Elliot Ness and the Untouchables did contributed to Capone's eventual fall in any way, or even slightly interrupted the liquor trade in Chicago. See, the real work to take down Capone was happening behind the scenes at the desk of IRS agent Frank Wilson. Capone was extraordinarily good at avoiding being implicated in the various murders, assaults, and other crimes he was involved in. Mob bosses generally are. But in 1927, Assistant Attorney General Mabel Willebrandt trialed a new way of getting at the gangs through their taxes. Willebrandt would take the case of a petty bootlegger tried for tax evasion to the Supreme Court, who in the United States v. Sullivan ruled that taxes had to be paid on illegal income. This opened a new avenue to take down especially slippery criminals like Capone. Following this decision, however, higher-up crims began safeguarding themselves, laundering their cash and paying their taxes. Frank Wilson came up with a fairly brilliant, if incredibly mundane, plan to take down America's public enemy number one. Check Capone's receipts. Frank Wilson was an agent for the Treasury's Bureau of Internal Revenue, later called the Internal Revenue Service. He had his first big case in 1930, when he helped take down Ralph Capone, Al Capone's brother, for tax evasion. And the same year, he was put in charge of taking down Al Capone. Unfortunately, nerds in an office going through receipts don't make the newspapers. And in late 1930, the Treasury Department implemented a flashier plan being pushed for in Washington. A small and specialised task force tasked with making big flashy busts for the press. The Untouchables. Now, Ness's task force did do some incredible busts, and over the next year, the Untouchables took the Capone organisation for about $40 million in today's money. The problem with that? Capone's personal wealth, while difficult to estimate, is generally estimated by prohibition historians as being somewhere between about 100 million modern dollars and 1 billion modern dollars. And the value of his enterprise was well into the billions. So $40 million of lost revenue is a drop in the bucket for organisations like that. Now, in the popular story of The Untouchables, Ness uncovers Capone's books, proving his income, and sends him down. In reality, Frank Wilson, over a long and slow and boring investigation, leafed through thousands of receipts till they could prove that Capone had income he wasn't paying taxes on, then took him to court for tax evasion. He was charged with 22 counts of tax evasion and convicted of five and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Ness, to his credit, tried to have him convicted on 5,000 cases of violating the Volstead Act, the act that created prohibition. However, a judge decided against pursuing it. So in May 1932, Capone was sent to a federal penitentiary in Atlanta thanks to the tireless but unsexy work of Frank Wilson and his team. But the public didn't want to see some paper-pushing nerd on the front page, so the government awarded the title of the man who took down Capone to Ness, a man who did not in any way take down Capone. The only time in his life that Ness met Capone was on May 3rd, 1932. Ness was assigned to the detail, 
transporting Capone from Cook County Jail to Dearborn Station. A journey of just seven miles. But as is so often the case, the sexy story won out, and Ness became nation and later world famous. Ironically, though Ness was famous as the man who went toe-to-toe with the devil, it was Wilson who actually drew Capone's ire. Ness was never in any real danger, but Wilson... Wilson, on the other hand, Capone took out a hit on him at one point. Because what Ness was doing was PR, whereas what Wilson was doing was going to take Capone down, and he knew it. Now, unsurprisingly, Elliot Ness's career went well after the high of being called the man who took down Capone. He became the chief investigator of the Bureau of Prohibition before being assigned to tackle moonshine stills in Appalachia. And it's at this point that Ness actually does some really noteworthy police work. First in the Moonshine Mountains, then in Cleveland in 1934. When appointed as both the head of the police and of the fire department of Cleveland in 1934, one local paper said, quote, The mere announcement of his selection is worth a squadron of police in the effect it will have on the underworld's peace of mind, end quote. And between 1934 and 1938, Ness showed that his myth was not all myth. He would manage to convict two police captains and seven officers of corruption while professionalising the city's police, also taking down 20 gangsters. Unfortunately, 1938 marked the height of his career. 1938 was a bad year for the poster boy of justice. The Cleveland newspapers began to turn on their hero following a series of unsolved brutal murders, and the scandals just kept coming. Firstly, he cleared and burned the city's shanties, and then worse, got divorced in the 1930s, and then to top things off, he got into a drunken car accident, which he tried to cover up. The resulting scandal, or scandals, forced him to resign in disgrace. His career never recovered. He spent the last years of his life bouncing between businesses and jobs in the federal government. He briefly ran for mayor of Cleveland in 1947, losing, and in 1956 he moved to the small town of Cloudersport to work with a watermarking security company, which fell apart almost immediately. The 54-year-old Elliot Ness dropped dead of a heart attack on May 16, 1957, with his book The Untouchables finally finished. Ness died penniless and disgraced. A few months later, Ness's writing partner, Oscar Fraley, got The Untouchables published, and it would sell over a million copies. As for Capone, well, Capone continued not thinking about Elliot Ness, partially because he had nothing to do with him, but also because Capone's syphilis was slowly driving him insane. In 1934, Capone was transferred to Alcatraz Prison in San Francisco Bay. Alcatraz, by the way, means pelican. Capone was paroled in 1939 and died in 1947. The syphilis had damaged Capone's brain to the point where he was noted to have the mentality of a 12-year-old. As for Frank Wilson, Capone's actual nemesis, well, he lived a significantly longer and more successful life than either Ness or Capone. After taking down Capone, Wilson continued being a behind-the-scenes badass, firstly investigating the Lindbergh kidnapping before joining the Secret Service, then going toe-to-toe with the notorious FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, who wanted control of the president's bodyguards, then rewriting the rulebook for how the Secret Service protected the president, implementing 
many policies still in use today. He retired in 1947 and died in 1970 at the age of 83. And with that, we come to the end of the weird and depressingly human story of Elliot Ness, The Untouchables, and Al Scarface Capone. Thank you for listening today. If you liked, hated, or were indifferent to the show today, I have some good news. There is now an official Historical Hysteria email address. You can message with any comments or criticisms. Historicalhysteria at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to check the socials at Manic History on Twitter and r slash Historical Hysteria on Reddit. And before I go, I will leave you with this fun factoid. During World War I, there were two engagements between submarines and cavalry, and in both instances, the cavalry won. You have a great day out there, and goodbye. <laughs>